You know, as a parent, there's two words um, that you hear often from your kids. And a lot of times those words are, I'm scared, right? They, they, they come in at night or sometimes they come home from school and they give you those two words, I'm scared. Sometimes it's this real realistic fear of things that they may have ever overheard or things that uh, they saw on TV. And then other times there's just these thoughts that are so far out there that it's like, man, where, where did they get that from? But the words are still there, I'm scared. I don't always claim to be the best husband in the world. Uh, in fact, I very rarely ever claim to be the best <laughs> husband in the world. Uh, when my kids were little, uh, I'm talking about like in the crib still little, um, my wife and I would lay in bed at night, it's dark and one of them would start crying and uh, we would have to decide who had the opportunity <laughs> to go see the children. Um, so, <laughs> so what I came up with being a fairly competitive person was, I think we should just play paper, rock, scissors to go decide who gets to go see the kids. Um, so we'd play two out of three, because you have to, right? Play two out of three, and it's dark. And so we did, you know, the one, two, three, shoot. And I would say, what do you got? And so she would tell me, and man, sorry, babe. I got scissors. <laughs> but here's the trick, is you always got to make sure to lose one. You can't do a clean sweep. You had to lose one. And it was about a week and a half, two weeks into this until she, she realized, wait a minute, you never lose. And I, I just busted out laughing. I was like, like, I'm sorry. But I wasn't really that sorry. However, things always come back around. And so my wife is a very heavy sleeper and I'm a light sleeper. So now when our kids get up, they come to me. And so I'm the one that hears those words, I'm scared. What is it about fear that grips us so much? It steals our sleep. It steals uh, our purpose. It steals our identity, but it's still there, right? And it doesn't matter how realistic or unrealistic the fear is. The fear is real. When they come to me and say that they're scared of killer clowns, it's still real. It doesn't matter what the fear is for. The fear is real. So, Obviously, you know, we're going to talk about fear today, but there's a couple of, of kind of ground rules that I want to set as we look into this. And number one is having an authentic doubt or fear does not mean that you have an inauthentic faith. And a lot of times we think that those two cannot coincide. So having an authentic doubt does not negate your faith. At the same time, doubt, I'm sorry, at the same time, faith doesn't mean there's a complete absence of doubt. So we're going to talk about how those two have a tension, but there's still life in those, okay? So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to hang out there for a bit. We're going to move through some scripture really quick, but as we open the word of God, let's pray this morning. God, we're grateful for our time together. We're grateful for the body of Christ. We're grateful for unity in the body of Christ. And my prayer is that as we open up your word, that, that truth would flow that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. I believe that uh, in this room that you have prepared a word for every person in here, for every set of ears. Will we grasp it? Will we take it to heart? Will we allow it to change who we are, to grow us 
And Father, I ask that every word that comes from my mouth is of you, that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, that it's not my message, but it's the word of Jesus Christ pouring through me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So 1 Kings 18, I love the Old Testament. And one of the reasons that I love the Old Testament is because so much of it just plays out just like a movie scene. And I hear, I hear often people say, man, I, I wish they would make the Bible into a movie. And my first thought is, really? Because you realize that if it was made into a movie, you probably couldn't see it. Because there is some bad stuff that happens in the Bible. And I can promise you, it would not be PG-13 and it probably wouldn't be rated R. I mean, there is some gory, sexual, violent stuff that happens in the Bible. But it plays out like a movie scene. So we're gonna move pretty quick through some scripture real quick. I'm just gonna hit the highlights here. First Kings 18, we have the story of Elijah. Now, right before this, we find out that Ahab becomes king of Israel. And what the writer of Kings tells us about Ahab, he uses this phrase when he introduces every king. And he, he either says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or he says he did good in the eyes of the Lord. But here's the phrase that he uses when he introduces Ahab. He says, he did more evil than any king who had gone before him. So Ahab is not a good man. But just in case things couldn't get worse, Ahab marries Jezebel, who we've all heard of, whether you've read scripture or not. We know the name Jezebel, and it does not have a good connotation to it. So he marries Jezebel, who's not from Israel. And Jezebel not only comes into the palace, she pushes God out of the palace and brings Baal into the palace. So now everything that Ahab does is through the eyes of Jezebel, okay? So we know that moving up to 1 Kings 18, there's this great famine that's gone on. It says it hasn't rained for over three years and they need water. So moving into chapter 18, Ahab calls Obadiah. Obadiah is his right-hand man. What Ahab doesn't know about Obadiah is that Obadiah is a devout follower of God. And in fact, he's taken some of the prophets that were left from God and he's hidden them for their own safety. But he's Ahab's right-hand man. So Ahab calls him and he says, hey, let's go throughout the land and we need to get some food and water for my animals. That's not a good king. He doesn't say, let's get some food and water for our people. They're starving, they're thirsty. Let's get some food and water for my animals. So they go separate ways. And it says, Obadiah comes across Elijah walking up to him. Now, Obadiah knows exactly who Elijah is. He is the man of God. He is the prophet of God. And Obadiah falls at his feet and he says, is it you, my Lord? And Elijah tells him to get up. And he says, look, I know for three years, Ahab has been looking for me. Go tell him I'm here. And Obadiah says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a devout follower of God. I know who you are, but you realize what you're asking me to do, right? You see, I've done this other stuff. I love God. I've taken these prophets. I'm feeding them. I'm taking care of them. I'm keeping them safe. But you realize that if I go back to Ahab and say, hey, I met with Elijah today, there's a pretty good chance that the rest of that sentence isn't going to get out of my mouth before he kills me, right? But even if it does get out of my mouth and I tell him to come meet with you and for some reason you don't show up, that's on me. So can we find another way? And, I, and Elijah tells him, I promise you, I will meet with him today. So Ahab, uh, Obadiah goes, he tells Ahab, Elijah's here. So Ahab doesn't send people out to Elijah. He wants to see this himself. So he goes straight out, meets Elijah. And his first words are, what are you doing here, you troublemaker? You see everything that you've caused over the last three years? 
no introspection whatsoever of this could possibly be my fault. You see everything that you cause. And Elijah says, you think I caused this? You think I'm the one that's causing this trouble? All right, here's what we're gonna do. Get all your prophets of Baal, bring them out, tell all the people of Israel to come sit in the middle and we're gonna have a little contest here today. Get some bulls, we're gonna put one on each side and whoever's able to call on their God to burn up this bull wins. And we're gonna let the people choose for themselves. Now, this is where there's always some phrases that the writers in the Old Testament put in there that you just, you gotta laugh at, right? And so he puts this phrase in there that says, all the Israelites said, well, this seems like a good idea. And so they sit in the middle and they're going to decide, all right, which, one, which one's going to win? And you see the, the competition coming out of, of whose God is going to win. And Elijah says, you know what? I'm even going to let you go first. Go ahead. So the prophets come out and they're dancing and they're singing and they're calling on their God. They're praying to, for this bull to come burn up. And they go for hours. And it says at noon, Elijah begins to trash talk a little bit. And this is the first trash talk that we see in the Bible. But Elijah's pretty competitive. So he says, hey, maybe you guys aren't singing loud enough. Maybe you're, maybe you're not praying good enough. You know what? I bet Bell's just asleep. So why don't, why don't y'all just raise, raise the notch a little bit? So now they get, the, they get pieces of glass and they're cutting themselves and they're pouring their blood out before the God so that, God so that their God would come burn up this bull. And they go for hours and hours on. And finally, Elijah says, all right, that's enough, my turn. So he gets the bull, he puts it on his altar and he tells the people, he says, cover it with water. So they go get water, they cover it. He says, cover it with water. So they go get more water, they cover it. He says, cover it with water. They, co- they cover it, there's a trench dug around it. This trench is filled with water and he prays to God. And as you know from the story, fire comes down, burns up the bull, saps up all the water, And the people say, you know what? This is what we've been looking for. And not only that, they kill all the prophets of Baal and Elijah tells Ahab, it's going to rain. So Ahab goes back, Elijah goes out with his messenger and they're sitting on the seal. He he says, go tell me if you see anything. He comes back, says, there's no clouds. Go tell me. They do it three times. Finally, he comes back and he says, there's a cloud. And Elijah tells him, tell Ahab, it's about to rain. And so Elijah leaves. End of chapter. This great victory, this great celebration. Elijah has seen firsthand the power of God. And then here's where chapter 19 picks up. It says, Ahab goes back to Jezebel and he tells her, get this phrase right here. He says, what Elijah did. Elijah didn't have anything to do with the fire coming down from heaven, but Ahab still cannot give God credit for something that might possibly have come from him. And so, He tells Jezebel that, and this is what Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. And she says, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if I don't make you pay the same way that you made those prophets of Baal pay. That's a threat. And so even though Elijah has seen all of this that God has just done, the next phrase says, Elijah was afraid. And he takes off. And he goes and he gets this vision from the Lord and the Lord, the Lord leads him to this other place. And there the Lord says, why are you here? 
And Elijah tells him, I'm the only one left. And he, and he gives him the story of how he's in isolation and he's afraid. And it says there was, a, there was a tornado, there was a fire, there was earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in any of those. And then he comes to him again and he says in a gentle whisper, why are you here? You see, fear has a way of taking truth and it begins to twist it and twist it and twist it. And what fear, what sin does to us is at the beginning, it just to, it takes the majority of truth, but against to, to push in little pieces of deceit. And we believe it. Then we twist a little bit more and we believe it. We twist a little bit more and we believe it. So here's, as we start this morning, three things that I, I really want to preface all of this with, because these are dangerous avenues of theology that westernized Christianity really buys into. And one is when you hear someone say that they know exactly what God is doing. Because we're uncomfortable living in a mystery and we have to have answers. And so we look for answers. So we have that end of it of someone that says they know exactly what God is doing. But then you have the other end of the spectrum of someone who says God is not doing anything. And those are two extremely dangerous avenues of theology to buy into. But... We do it because it gives us an answer. And it gives us an answer that might subtly suffice what we're looking for, whether it's laced in truth or whether it's laced in deceit. It gives us an answer. The other one is this, and it's in Romans 8. We hear the verse a lot that says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so we take the end of that verse and think that that's the emphasis of it those who love him, for the good of those who love him. But I want to twist it just a little bit. And what Paul is saying in that verse is, in all things, God works. In all things, God works. And when we, when we only take the last half of that verse, it makes us think that in all good things, God works. But when we see the verse for what it really says, it's in the good things God works, and it's in the bad things God works. That doesn't mean God causes. That means God works. And so we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying any other way than this cup, and God says, no, God works. We see when Elijah runs to Mount Horeb, God works. We see in our lives today, when we don't get the answer that suits what we're looking for, God works. In all things, God works. And so we have this phrase that we use a lot when things aren't going well, or maybe when we're looking for something more, we say we're gonna, we need to find God. And, and that, that phrase has always struck me a little bit because it gives this connotation to me that God is lost, that we have to go find God. And I, and I guess in my mind, which is warped, I, I'll freely put that out there. In my mind, I see God saying, I'm here in all things. I'm here. You don't have to find me. Open your eyes, open your heart because I'm here. So we get to Mount Horeb where Elijah runs to. There's a little background to Mount Horeb. He's coming from Mount Carmel. He runs to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is actually another name for Mount Sinai. 
And what we know as Mount Sinai is where this is where Moses goes to receive the Ten Commandments. So it's a very holy place to the Israelites. So Elijah goes to Mount Sinai and it says he went into the cave. If you look at the actual translation of Hebrew, it doesn't say he went into a cave. He went to the cave, which is actually translated the cleft. So Elijah goes to the exact same spot that Moses receives the 10 commandments from because he thinks this is where he's gonna find God. Now we read scripture through a tone and we read scripture through a perspective and we put emphasis on words depending on what season of life we're in, right? We have our, our, our human nature that puts emphasis on that. And so when I hear this phrase from God to Elijah, when he says, why are you here? To me, the emphasis is on this. He says, why are you here? And Elijah says, I'm the only one left. All, all, the, other, all the other prophets have been killed. I'm it. And fear has a way of drawing us into isolation. Fear has a way of drawing us into a spot where we're not supposed to be. It steals our purpose. It steals our identity. It steals our direction slowly. And so this God goes on and he tells him, you're not the only one. I've got 700 prophets that I've reserved and they're waiting for you to come back to give them direction. Not only that, I'm preparing Elisha who I need you to go back and anoint so that he can come along because he's gonna take your spot in years to come. And, and God gives him this plan of hope and he restores identity and he restores direction and he restores purpose that had been stolen by fear. And it's in our spiritual meltdowns where God restores and it's in our spiritual meltdowns where God takes the old belief and he renews it into truth. You know, I, I have opportunities at time to talk to people uh, who, who have told me this phrase of, I just can't believe in God anymore. And it's usually coming out of a form of tragedy or, or coming out of, of something that didn't go the way that they wanted. And my response is usually, you can't believe and that God anymore. Because what we've done is, is we take God and we put him in the confines of what we define as him being able to do. And when it doesn't look the way that we think God is supposed to look or act the way that we think that God is supposed to act, then it's this letdown. And it's in our fear that we create those. Because we don't like to be let down, right? but God takes those beliefs and our spiritual meltdowns and he restores and he renews. I wanna take just a sidebar real quick because I, I, I hear on the news a lot. Uh, I gotta be honest with you, I don't like watching the news, but the guys that I work with like to watch the news. So I, I pick up little concepts of it. And I hear a, a lot that Christianity is on the decline in the world. And this is, this is the side note that I wanna take you on. And I wanna tell you, it's not. Now, I heard a preacher use this phrase a couple months ago, and I love the way that, that he uh, phrased it, where he says that, yes, in, a, in North America, Christianity is in the midst of a pruning. And I like that because I believe that it is. However, in the rest of the world, Christianity is exploding. Get, get, get some of these stats right here. And this is from the International Missions Research Report, which came out at the end of 2016. In the year 2016, more Muslims came to Christ than any year ever before. 
Christianity is still the fastest growing religion in the world. Right now, it's at 2.2 billion people. And by the year 2050, it's estimated to be at 3.6 billion people. It's the fastest growing religion in the world and it's not even close. 16,000 people per day in China are coming to Christ, per day. Here's the other thing about China is they have over 150,000 people who have been diligently trained in missions that are waiting at the Western wall of China for the wall to come down to move West. Do you know what's exactly West of China? The most Muslim countries in the world. And there's over 160,000 missionaries that cannot wait to get in there. Africa's already sending missionaries to the US. The Bible is still the most published and the most read book in the world. And again, it's not even close. God is on the move in the world. Yeah, there might be a pruning going on in North America, but God is on the move in the world. And that's exciting. May the kingdom come, may his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But in the midst of that, we have this dichotomy of fear and living in fear. And as we talked about earlier, it doesn't mean that your faith is false or fake or inauthentic if you have fear. It's natural. However, when we live in fear to where fear dictates our relationships, when it dictates our jobs, when it dictates the way that we treat people, when it dictates the way that we treat ourselves, when it dictates our view of everything, it's wrong and it's false and it's not the identity that we're called to live in. Anxiety. There's 8.6 million people in the US right now that struggle with anxiety. I hear missionaries or friends that have gone to some countries, to Haiti, to Dominica, to the Dominican Republic, to Africa, and they talk about the physical spiritual warfare that they see there. And I have other people that say, why don't we see that in the US? And I think that in the US, one of the greatest spiritual warfares that we have is through anxiety and through depression because it's how the evil one uses fear to grip us and to distort truth and to distort the gospel truth of who we are. Again, it's not wrong to fear, but when we allow it to dictate who we are, we're not living in in the nature that we're called to live in. But here's the good news. You're not the hero of your story. And even better news, God doesn't ask you to be. Because if he did, it probably wouldn't turn out real well. Am I right? We love movies where there's a hero story that swoops in. When Simba comes back to the promised land, right? Shameless plug, Lion King is the greatest movie ever. When Simba comes back to the promised land. We love when the hero swoops in at the last second and he saves the people and he he turns everything right and he restores all that is good. And God doesn't ask you to be the hero. In fact, Paul says this. He says, who can rescue me 
from this body of death because I can't. But thanks be to Jesus Christ, the hero of our story. Now, we have this mentality sometimes that, that when we enter into this greater level of spirituality or when we enter into discipleship or when we enter into the gospel story, that all will be made right and that the giants in our land will be removed and that the opposition in our land will be removed. And that's not true. We even see that when the Israelites go into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites are still there. And when we come to Christ, when we enter into discipleship, our problems are not always removed. But God is the hero of our story. And he promises to go before us. He promises to go behind us. He promises to go beside us and lead us into the land, the inheritance, the royalty that he's given you by calling you a son and daughter of his. See, fear, fear has been defeated. It's dead. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. But its venom still stings. I grew up out in East Texas where we had a lot of snakes and I was told early on that uh, there was this Native American a ritual, I guess, that would happen of when they would kill a snake, they would cut its head off and they would bury it. And science has gone on to prove that when a venomous snake is killed, that its venom can still be injected for up to 120 days. So if you were to, to step on the head of a snake that's dead and it injected its venom into your foot, into your hand, whatever, it's still potent for up to 120 days. The, the snake is dead. There is no life there, but its venom still stings. And so for us, fear has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. But we see firsthand that its venom still stings. So a lot of times when I preach, the question that I ask myself is because of what's said on Sunday, what's different on Monday. So because of, of what we're talking about today, what's different tomorrow? And here, here's what I wanna challenge you to do, is I wanna challenge you to displace fear, to displace doubt with worship. Now, we hear the word worship, and so our minds automatically go to music, and I love music. It's, it's a large part of who I am. But that's only a branch of worship. Worship is found in communing. Worship is found in the word of God. Worship is found in music. Worship is found in our conversations. Worship is found when we bring recognition or admiration to God. So I wanna challenge you to use worship to displace fear and to displace worry, to displace doubt. And this isn't a one-time deal. It's not where you do it once and, and that's gonna be good forever. No, it's, it's gonna be, a, a discipling, and it's going to be a greater discipleship of learning to move in discipline and to write the word of God on our hearts. And there are some verses that really speak into the heart of fear and that displace it. I love when Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Jesus tells Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I love when John says in 1 John, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we will be called sons and daughters of God. And that is what you are. It is for freedom that you have been set free. Don't hold on to a spirit of timidity, but you've been given a spirit of courage and of boldness. Write scripture on your heart, write it on your forehead, not literally, but write it on your forehead. Put it on your mirror, put it on your reflection. Make it become who you are and it will displace fear and it will displace worry and it will become the identity for who you are called to be. Because like we talked about earlier, fear steals identity. It steals truth, it steals direction, it steals purpose. And God wants to restore all of that back to who you are. So I'm gonna ask that you stand and we're just gonna make this a practice right now. Psalm 23 is a Psalm of David. And David was a man who dealt with a lot of fear in his life. For years, he ran in fear from Saul for what Saul might do to him if he found him. David committed murder out of fear. He murdered a man because he'd had an affair with his wife and he was afraid that if the people found out that that child was his, he was afraid of what might happen, so he just had him murdered. Fear captivated David at different parts of his life, the same way that it captivates us at different parts of our lives. And, and it makes us do things. It makes us go places that we're not, not supposed to be. But God. So David uses this psalm to speak to God. Let's read this together. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod, your staff, they comfort me. And so it's why we sing songs when we make declarations like, you're never going to let me go. When we make declarations like, great is your faithfulness. When we make declarations of take courage, it's not to remind God that God, just so you remember, you're never going to let me go. God, just so you remember your promises that you promise you'll be faithful. It's to remind our souls. It's to remind each other. It's to remind the body of Christ of the hope and the promise and the truth and the faithfulness that God has given us in his word. And we declare that. So I'm going to invite our ministry team forward. If there's anything that fear has grasped in your life that you need to partner with, confession, repentance, moving forward, moving out of, moving into, we want to pray against the power of fear right now. We're going to spend some time in worship, in song, in prayer, in whatever it is. And my prayer is that we displace fear and worry 
right now. This is the way that the writer of Hebrews puts it. In chapter two, he's talking about when Jesus comes down from heaven and he's made himself a man and he's given this inheritance. And he says this, he says, since the children, you, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So God, we wanna give our chains to you this morning. We wanna give our fear, we wanna give our doubt, we wanna give our bondage, we wanna give our worry. We wanna lay it down right now in our worship. May your word be written on our hearts. May we be reminded of your promises and of your truth and that you are faithful to who you say you are going to be and you have defeated the power of slavery of death, the fear of death, the fear that grasps us. And we give that to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.